once you've identified where you need to improve, uh, what you're doing good, because it's always, you need to give yourself a pat on the back every once in a while. It makes you feel good. Um, and where you could, what, where you can maybe do better, take those areas where you think you could be doing a little bit better, better where it, whether it's in grazing management or using more or artificial insemination on your herd um, to improve the genetics of your herd. Just do one little thing that you know, like do take, just take one step at a time. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Mycotoxins can threaten cattle performance. DSM offers a portfolio of solutions to help mitigate the impact of mycotoxins in your feed. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Welcome to another episode of the Beef Podcast Show. My name is Dr. Stephanie Hansen. I'm a feedlot nutritionist at Iowa State University, and it's my pleasure to introduce today's guest, Dr. Jacqueline Prestigard-Wilson. Dr. Prestigard's research is primarily in ruminant metabolic modeling combined with practical on-farm feed and dairy nutrition management. This gives her a progressive yet grounded worldview on the future of ruminant nutrition and sustainable livestock systems, topics we're going to cover in depth today. Her academic achievements include a bachelor's degree in animal science from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and a master's in ruminant nutrition from the University of Missouri and a PhD in dairy cattle nutrition from Virginia Tech. Now she is an assistant professor and livestock sustainability specialist at Texas A&M University. So welcome to the show, Jacqueline. Thank you, Dr. Hansen. I appreciate that. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to visit with you here today. And of course, we have to start out as we always do to help our listeners um, or viewers understand a little bit more about your origin story. So tell us how you got to this point in your career to help serve uh, beef producers. Sure. I grew up in Northern Illinois. And uh, actually what I like to tell people down here in Texas is I grew up in DeKalb County, Illinois, which is where barbed wire was invented much to their shock usually because they think it was invented here but um, I grew up there on a really small cow-calf operation that my grandparents had and I grew up showing not very good show cattle (laughs) through 4-H and FFA um, all the way through the end of high school and although I wasn't very good uh, or my cattle, the cattle I showed weren't the best, I suppose. I'm not, I should give myself a little more credit because I worked pretty hard and I, I liked working with those animals enough that I wanted to keep working with cattle in some way. And that's how I ended up at U of I. Uh, our family is a big U of I family. So it was really easy to, to decide to go down there. And much like a lot of young women uh, who start off in animal science, I wanted to be a large animal veterinarian or some kind of veterinarian. But I decided very quickly, probably the first week of undergrad, that that was not going to be the path for me. Um, And I ended up taking a 
uh, ruminant nutrition class and a feeds and feeding class. And I really loved it. And I thought it would be awesome to be that person who develops rations for beef cattle. Um, I didn't really know how I was going to get there, but it just it was a eye in the, pie in the sky kind of idea for me. And so the next logical step was to get a master's. That's where I found myself um, at University of Missouri with uh, Dr. Monty Curley in feedlot nutrition. And there uh, we worked a lot on amino acid metabolism of feedlot cattle. Basically, how do we optimize the protein that we feed to feedlot cattle in a way that makes economical sense and also can have some environmental benefits. And long story short, or long story long, I guess, I ended up on the dairy side just because I was really interested in this amino acid work. And there's a lot greater breadth of knowledge on the dairy side in that particular area, just because of the nature of the dairy industry. You get to see dairy cows two or three times a day, and you can collect a lot more data that you can learn a lot more from. So I finished my PhD at Virginia Tech in dairy nutrition last December. And I, um, for a long time, I really thought I wanted to be a teacher or teach classes, teach courses. At Virginia Tech, I took, uh, I was part of a program called Preparing the Future Professoriate, and it was really good for showing graduate students what to actually expect as a faculty member. Um, and probably the most important thing it taught me was that I don't want to only teach. <laughs> um, and so I found myself looking into both industry positions and extension positions. And that's how I ended up here at Texas A&M AgriLife in extension. And I'm fully extension personnel. I don't teach courses. Um, my job is to work with extension agents. And my title is actually livestock sustainability specialist. So I'm supposed to be working with more than just beef cattle. Um, but what I'm familiar with is beef and dairy cattle. So that's where I'm starting off uh, early on in my career here is working with, with those mostly beef to start off with because Texas is a big beef state as most of us know. We have a time and labor saving product for you. Beef and Dairy AgriSlat by Healthy Farms is your solution. No more lugging jugs around the barn every month. With Beef and Dairy AgriSlat, you simply drop the slat through the floor twice a year and it works to break down solids, reduces crusting and forming. To learn more, visit MyHealthyFarms.com. Awesome. Well, it's uh, it's actually pretty timely um, to have this conversation with you, Jacqueline, in part, uh, kind of like a really similar backstory to yours, right? In the sense of growing up, I lived in town, but my grandparents had cattle. That was my real exposure to the beef industry. I started showing also not great cattle, right? But took it very seriously to, to do a good job and do well in showmanship and things like that. And I totally credit that for giving me a passion in the beef industry um, that was separate from maybe an interest in veterinary medicine. And so um, good job to you to figure it out really early that you wanted to go on a different track than, than pre-vet. And it sounds like it's been a really fun adventure for you so far to kind of string together some different species experiences with both beef cattle and dairy cattle. So I think that's super valuable, especially in a livestock, a more broad livestock role like you find yourself in now. So before we talk a little bit more about some of the things that you're doing now in your position, 
maybe help some of our listeners and myself as well understand kind of what extension means in Texas, because you have this massive agri-life system, right? And and that's a pretty valuable resource for you down there. So can you help us understand that a little bit better? Right. And I'm still learning myself about extension in Texas coming from a Midwestern state where, I mean, without University of Illinois extension service, I wouldn't have been in 4-H and it was certainly critical to being where I'm, I'm today. I mean, I, I had an internship at our local, at DeKalb County Farm Bureau as a ag communications intern. Um, but it's been very eye-opening to me and impressive to me to just see the, the extent to which Texas has funded and supported extension. Um, we have 254 counties in the state of Texas, and all of them have, well, 250 of them have at least one county agent working. So, and I, as a specialist in beef sustainability, so we have specialists in beef cattle, we have sheep and goat specialists, we even have uh, livestock guard dog specialists and feral hog specialists in Texas. So it's the specialist job to work for the agents. So if the agent comes across a question from a producer or a question from, because extension isn't just about agriculture as well, it's about working with people in cities or towns, small and large. Um, so we as specialists are the source of information and resources, resource for, uh, for those agents, because they're certainly not expected to know everything even though they get a lot thrown at them. Um, we're, we're supposed to come and, and help and provide presentations and programming in their local counties for whatever the needs that they have are. And those needs change a lot. Part of extension in Texas as well is disaster and recovery relief. Um, so if there are tornadoes, hurricanes, et cetera, extension is a part of helping clean up, helping aid people in the local area uh, in whatever their needs are. Um, a lot of that can be tied to if there are forage needs for cattle and when if there is major flooding um, or some sort of emergency, some sort of disaster, extension is part of that as well. So it's a really, really large network here in Texas. Like I said, I'm still, I'm still learning <laughs> about all of it myself, but I've really enjoyed having access to all of those resources right as soon as I started working here. It's been really nice. And you just started in January in Texas? Yes. I moved down here at the end of December when it was nice and cool. And ah, <laughs> they fooled you. Right, right. Well, I had people saying, just you wait. And I mean, they were right. <laughs> it's pretty darn hot right now. I think they had the highest ever recorded temperature in College Station the other day, 114 degrees. <laughs> well, um, so we're recording this kind of at the end of August in 2023. And we here in the Midwest, of course, you in Texas have been hot for like since May, but we've had just come off of a really persistent long heat wave here where it didn't cool down at night. And so yesterday afternoon was the worst of all the days because it had not been cooling sufficiently at night. Cattle had about four days worth of heat built up by that point. Um, so we're very grateful to see a little bit of rain coming through this morning and finally starting to cool down as we move into the weekend. So I do not 
I, I knew it was hot in Texas, but I don't think I had an appropriate degree of sympathy for producers dealing with the effects of very long, persistent heat humidity combinations like you've had there in Texas this this summer. Yeah. And it, it makes things, it, it makes it a challenge to me as well as be coming from a place that gets somewhat regular rain. And with my, my training, we're talking about, you know, rotational grazing and grazing management strategies. It's hard to tell a producer, this is what I think you need to do, you know, make a grazing management plan when they don't have any grass or all other grass is brown. It's a little more tricky and a little more sensitive, I think, as well. Absolutely. So I imagine there's been a number of challenges and opportunities. So opportunities maybe being this really extensive um, extension network that you just told us about, challenges being the weather or some of the things like that. What other kind of challenges have you seen with coming from sort of a Midwest background or Midwest and kind of East Coast training system and then, you know, moving down there to Texas? Well, everyone in Texas refers to cattle raisers as ranchers. (laughs) So the dialogue has been a little bit different for me. You know, we're talking about ranches and ranchers where up home, it's just farms and farmers. So that's kind of a, a silly one. But Water is something that I have taken for granted my whole life, and I'm just now understanding that to the full degree living down here. Um, not only is there there's a shortage of rain for crops and for pasture land, but there's wells are drying up uh, for producers around the state. And if the well dries up and you're not going to put in a new well, what do you do? several producers have had to liquidate their herds just because they don't have water on their on their property. Um, in addition to water, uh, there's a lot of people moving to Texas, something like, I think, a thousand people a day are moving to Texas and they're buying land. Um, they're not just moving to urban areas, they're buying small acreage as well. So there's a little bit of competition then for land and resources, Uh, but also you have quite a few new people or people who are interested in getting into raising cattle or raising small ruminants or something like that. Um, In addition to that, there are a lot of people inheriting land from their parents or grandparents who are completely new to ranching, raising cattle, and they want to keep it in the family. So we have a lot of moving parts going on right now, um, what with the persistent drought, lots of people moving here, um, beef prices pretty high, but the cow herd being pretty low, feed prices being high, lots of lots of moving parts that are quite a bit different here than, than up either in the Midwest or in the, the mid-Atlantic areas for sure. I imagine the convenience of grain is another one or, or haze and things like that, right? That's another thing I think we take for granted being here in the Corn Belt where you, were, you and I were both born and raised that we don't have to go very far, right? I've got distillers within 15 minutes in four different directions from where we raise cattle. That's very different um, in parts of Texas where things have to come in in a rail car, for example. Absolutely. Yeah. And we actually in Texas, though, we have 
a really wide variety of different sorts of climates and soil types. Um, there are parts of Texas, especially um, what's called the Blackland region. It's called the Blackland because the soil is black. It's very rich. Um, I was out uh, in the Blackland a couple months ago and the corn looked ready to harvest. It looked like fall in the Midwest. So there are regions where they can grow um, decent crops. And there are certainly lots of different sorts of byproducts like cotton gin trash, cotton seed, um, distillers as well, brewers grains. Um, one challenge that, uh, interesting challenge that I had never thought of when I was in that Blackland region a few months ago, there was an ag economist speaking at the event I was at and he was encouraging people who were growing grains to build a bin, you know, have storage for their grains. Just not something that a lot of folks do here um, so that they can leverage those, the changing markets, for example, so they can hold on to grain and sell it at a higher price later or something like that. So it's, it's definitely interesting. And there's a lot of opportunity then as well to make for producers to make really small changes to impact their bottom line. Yeah. And that makes total sense, right? Texas is a massive state. So it makes a lot of sense that there's different climates, different geography, different opportunities across that state. So I imagine that's got to be a little overwhelming going from a couple of states that would pretty neatly fit within the state that you're in right now, right? Um, tell us a little bit about, I know you're interested in sustainability, so maybe start by telling us a little bit about kind of what you hope some of your program goals are going to be focused around because uh, you're just getting started. And then I'm curious to hear more about this survey that you said you were kind of starting out with. Yeah, so... As I've gone around for the last few months, gone around the state and tried to informally poll people, whether that's agents, producers, et cetera, on what are their major issues on their operations um, or how do they envision sustainability? What have they heard about it? What do they think about it? What I've concluded thus far is that most people by definition have if they're in business right now, they have been sustainable in some way, shape, or form because they've sustained their operation. That's, you know, it's in, it's in the word itself. Now, in order to continue to sustain their operation, that's kind of the, the next question. That's where I want to focus my programming. What sorts of small change, either small changes or something that people don't always think about or what, what sort of maintenance can they keep doing? What sort of things are they doing right that they should keep doing? Um, that what, what sorts of things like that can help, help them out, help them be able to pass on their land or just um, even increase their cow numbers later on. Not right now, really, because we're in a major drought. So we're not really telling people to increase cow numbers, but so some small sorts of programs that I'm starting to target are centered around grazing management. And in particular, I'm interested in helping people understand the value of testing their forages, testing their grasses, and understanding the nutritive value of what they have on their property already. Um, because feed prices, as you know, have increased drastically over the past five years. 
But what hasn't really changed is the, the too much is the value of the grass that you already have on your property. I mean, there's opportunity costs associated with it and um, maintenance costs associated with pasture, having pasture land. But that grass on your property, if you have it, is going to be the cheapest source of nutrients that you can give your cattle. So if you can properly manage have proper grazing management strategies to maintain that cheap forage source and also understand what you have in terms of protein, fiber, et cetera, then you'll be a lot more self-sustaining. You won't have to buy as much hay. You won't have to buy as much grain. And that all is, is good for the bottom line, obviously. Um, and so what I've kind of found is not a lot of folks really understand the proper way to not only take a forage sample, but also how to analyze a forage or a feed analysis report or what to even ask for, what to order. Um, it is, I mean, it's confusing even as a nutritionist sometimes. There's so many different labs. Uh, each lab does something a little bit differently. Sometimes you could send the same sample to different labs and get a little bit different results. So I'm working to develop some programming uh, centered around all of that putting together like a library of here's a forage report or a feed sample report from a few different labs. This is what you'd be looking at. This is what where crude protein is, really emphasizing the importance of dry matter versus as fed and helping agents, like training agents to understand that also so that they can pass that knowledge on to producers because basically every county office in Texas that deals with uh, cattle producers, they have forage probes available to them to be able to go out and help a producer sample like a bale of hay. Um, but the report is and how to use the report is is a little bit more up in the air. So that's a really simple change. But that contributes to sustainability because feed cost is the number one cost on any operation. And that also helps producers uh, understand and see the value of grazing management plans such as implementing rotational grazing strategies which in turn helps fix more carbon into the soil and then that comes that the sustainability part of all that kind of comes in afterward um, another sort of totally different interest i have is working on the consumer side of things you know um, in making affordable, healthy, protein-dense animal products, especially for people who may be low income. Some of these sustainability topics that we often talk about, carbon neutral, net zero, low methane, on and on and on. Um, those are good starts, but they only make up a very tiny percent of what is actually sold in stores because they're only available to a select group of people and that's people who have the means to afford it. And so my question is, is what can, what needs to happen in order to make these claims more of the norm and less of a niche group? Um, I mean, we know many industry programs exist to promote value-added products like pasture-raised eggs or Etc. But um, the claims surrounding some of those—that's where this gets a little tricky too. This is <laughs> the definition of sustainability is kind of 
where that all gets a little bit murky, right? So by identifying, you know, how can we make these high quality protein dense foods that are sustainable, whatever that definition ends up being to the retailer or to the industry, to everyone and not just people with the means to buy it. Okay. I want to jump in here and ask a question. Um, do you think that if we were to go back in time 15 or 20 or 30 plus years ago and say this sustainability definition, the way that we have it today and not just economically sustainable, and, and we know we were already trying to be environmentally sustainable because we wanted to pass that on to the next generation, right? Um, but obviously we have this kind of societal pressure and stuff now. And sometimes I feel like the beef industry has already made so many improvements that we're a very peak performer, right? And how do we respond to this societal pressure to get even better? And not saying that we shouldn't try to get better, but I think maybe you and I have a, a line on our view here where it's like, geez, people were already doing a hell of a lot of things correct. Yeah. So are you saying, should we have capitalized on a lot of these things 30 years ago <laughs> so that we could show our progress up, you know, up till now, you know, that's a really good question. Um, and it's, it's sort of related to the dilemma that a lot of these <clears throat> corporations who are interested in sustainability initiatives, but don't really know how to dive into it the right way because they may or may not want to uh, say that they want to be net zero or carbon neutral in, by X year. Um, and if they don't, but they still want to be a part of this conversation, they don't, they don't really know where to, where to start because it's really hard to measure these things because we have become so much more efficient at feeding both beef and dairy cattle over the past 30 years. Um, but it's a difficult conversation for sure. And all we, all we can really do, I think right now is just to keep talking about that. You know, we've changed this, we've changed that. We've been thinking about this for a long time. I mean, um, the topic of sustainability has been around for since before I was born. Um, and actually, even right now, most consumers define that word as being related to animal welfare. They don't really think so much about the climate side of it. They know that that part's important, but they use sustainability a little bit synonymously with animal welfare. I think that's changing a little bit, but um, it's hard to know. It's, it's hard to know. <laughs> Hindsight is such 20, is so 2020 because 30 years ago, it's my understanding that beef quality was more of an issue. Um, and so in response to that, in response to having issues with inconsistent beef products, we have now beef quality assurance and it takes time, you know, it takes some time to adopt some of these uh, processes or these programs like BQA, but now BQA is fairly universal. Um, and you can't really sell to a major packer now without being a BQA certified operation. So these things take time. And I think actually BQA is a really good 
success story that shows that we do respond to consumer preferences and consumer um, issues, I guess, or things that they think are issues. And 30 years sounds like a lot of time, but actually in the grand scheme of things, that's a pretty quick turnaround to go from having less than 1% of our beef being labeled as prime to what it's like 10% or more now. Yeah, nine or 10. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a pretty quick turnaround in the grand scheme of human time, I suppose. So as you're starting to build your, your program there and thinking about ways to kind of practically attack this sustainability challenge for producers, uh, tell us a little bit more. So you started to talk about, you talk about kind of grazing management strategies what are maybe two or three other things that, you know, producers who are listening can make sure that it's kind of top of mind as they're, you know, thinking more about sustainability? Well, if you're thinking about it, that's the first step, really. If you're thinking to yourself, okay, there, there are things I'm doing really well that I want to keep doing. There are probably some things I could do to improve upon some of my management strategies, whether that's genetics, nutrition, reproduction, there's always something you can do better. Um, and identifying areas where you don't want to go backward. I think it, that sounds really simple, but that is an amazing first step, just identifying your areas of weakness, areas of strength, and areas for improvement. And once you have those clearly in your mind or at least defined to yourself, then that will influence and inform you on what sorts of decisions to make going forward. Because sustainability is often thought of as this three-way Venn diagram where environmental, economic, and social issues intersect. And in the center is this true sustainability, which I always say it's not possible to get right there perfect in the center of that three-way Venn diagram. All you can do is try to not go backward and try to either stay, stay where you are or improve. And that is, it's, it sounds really simplistic, um, but you have to sometimes have simplistic simplistic views for these really kind of complex issues, I suppose, because there's a lot of generalizing going on <laughs> at every step of the game here. And so generalized approaches to generalized problems, I suppose. And then once you've identified where you need to improve, uh, what you're doing good, because it's always, you need to give yourself a pat on the back every once in a while. It makes you feel good. Um, and where you could, what, where you can maybe do better, take those areas where you think you could be doing a little bit better, better where it, whether it's in grazing management or using more or artificial insemination on your herd um, to improve the genetics of your herd. Just do one little thing that you know, like do take, just take one step at a time. There's not really a rush right now. <laughs> um, it might feel like there's a rush and maybe there is a rush if you're in a sticky situation, I suppose, financially. But if you feel pretty content with where you're at, there's not a big rush to make major changes in your operation to move towards 
this grand grandiose view of whatever sustainability means. Um, just try little things here and there and see if it works, see if it works for you. That's a major part of it too. Something that works for one person, like a feed additive or, I don't know, trying a specific bull on, you know, your genetics are totally different in your herd versus another herd's cow, uh, cows. Um, find out what works for you because you have to be, that's where that social part of sustainability comes in that we don't talk a lot about. Um, you have to be content and happy with what you're doing and the changes that you're making. But also it has to be maintainable, I suppose. If it's a change that requires you to go out for, I, I think of when people talk about like mob grazing or intense, really intensive grazing, not everyone wants to go and move <laughs> move fencing every 45 minutes or whatever. Not everybody can do that. <laughs> it might be really, sure, maybe it's really good for carbon sequestration and getting improved forage mass on your land, but that's a lot of work. Uh, so it's just a moving target really. And just being patient with yourself and being patient with the process is really, is really key. So a couple of things there. I, I love the idea of having sustainability be one of the things that producers are consciously thinking about. And like you said, they're already doing things to be more sustainable. It's just maybe putting some vocabulary around it. And my favorite saying right now, because of some frustrations I've had at the university has been, a failure to plan is a plan to fail. So <laughs> this is one more thing that you can include in there. Of course, we're always encouraging producers to do, to collect the data, right? You can't make a decision um, without the data to make the decision. So these are all great things for producers to think about. And then my other thought was maybe someday if virtual fencing becomes more affordable, mob grazing won't be as big of a deal. You can set a generative AI program to tell your fencing to move every 45 minutes and you can mob graze the heck out of something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I was thinking of that, too, just now, thinking of like, oh, if only because that, that's another part of the sustainability piece is the cost. If it was just a little cheaper, it, it would be an amazing option. And who knows, I, with the ad, advent of more younger people coming into raising cattle and they want they like their vacations, they like their time away. They don't want to be on the farm all day, every day. More of that might become adopted and then supply and demand, maybe it'll become cheaper. Absolutely. I definitely feel like we are on the advent of a different level of technology incorporation into beef production, right? Things that are hopefully going to make life easier for producers um, who are already doing a lot of work to make a really great product for our consumer. Absolutely. For sure. I agree. So one of my questions I have for you too, Jacqueline, is as you're starting to think about building your extension program, and you know, I think extension looks different every year than it did in the decades prior, and you're in a big state too, so it's not like you can be on the road all the time to, to see all the producers there. You probably couldn't see all the producers there in your entire career at the university. But is there recommendations or suggestions you would give to producers listening to the podcast for ways that they can try to improve telling others their story about how they are already doing things that help contribute to sustainability of beef production? It's the same. I mean, I'm married. Uh, it's the same as in a marriage or in a friendship. And it starts with listening first. 
putting aside your biases, understanding, trying to understand and listen to the concerns of XYZ person uh, and responding with understanding and empathy. I mean, that's, I think, a major point that I work with um, within myself and with agents and with other people is there's a lot of rhetoric or there's a lot of like belief that we are just constantly under attack in animal agriculture. And I mean, I'm, that's not to minimize the, the fact that there are a lot of loud voices out there who want to see animal agriculture gone and um, think it's horrible for the environment. I totally see that. But it's not as prominent in the real world, that sort of loud language, I guess, um, as, as it is online. You know, everything is blown up online. And this was actually, I mean, a, a mistake, I guess, I, I made in my younger years, uh, being an FFA and um, in my early years of undergrad, I, I thought, you know, everyone is out to get animal agriculture. Why is Chipotle do, make, putting out these commercials? Humane Society of the United States is the worst. You know, it's, it's really not as, while some of those institutions have lobbyists and have some teeth, a real world consumer, the average consumer, they're not malicious. They just don't know. They just need some help understanding. And once you start to talk to them and leverage with them and connect with them, find some common ground with them, and hopefully they find try to find some common ground with you, it's a much more interesting and pleasant conversation to have, I suppose. And so, I would say producers, ranchers, whatever you want to call them, you're, they're already the expert of their own operation. They, they live it, unless they're just now coming into it, of course, but they already have the knowledge or they're continuing to gain knowledge. Um, and so if they're wanting to speak with consumers, don't worry about the knowledge part. Just worry about the connection part. Try to understand, try to listen, and try to sympathize or empathize that the world that that person grew up in is not the same as the world that you grew up in. And not everyone has the ability to see that way, see the world through that lens, I suppose. But, um, and that's something to keep in mind when you're speaking to someone else and if they're really not listening to you and they're not reciprocating, that's usually the point where I tell people is this conversation worth having then, you know? There's plenty of other people out there who are much more mature and willing to listen. And um, those are the people that I, I like to spend my time with. And I suggest others spend their time focusing on educating and le leveling with. Wow. I think that was really, really well said. I loved everything you said there from starting with listening to trying to leave your biases aside and, and listen to both sides and try to put yourself in their shoes. So, and I can, I can see such a great opportunity for extension specialists like yourself and the agents that you work with and whatever the nomenclature is for every state being different. 
to be one of the places where people can kind of share the things that they're doing. The producers can share their sustainability stories. And then you folks can serve as the vessel to get some of that out to more public awareness, right? People are taking videos of while they're moving cows from one pasture to another, or they're talking about using cover crops, just being on the forage topic here. There's tons of other things we could do, right? And planting cattle, things like that. So all things that positively improve sustainability. So I love that. Yeah. And I would add too that, I mean, as producers, like take advantage of the extension programs that are going on in your, your county or community. Um, those are the ways that you could continue to improve upon your foundational knowledge of what you're doing or what you can improve. And then you can use that knowledge, you know, I mean, knowledge is sovereignty to me. And that can help you not only improve your lifestyle, but it can help you talk more about why you do what you do because you have backup from the extension folks. And also you pay them through your taxes. <laughs> so, you know, use, use, use that resource. Um, we're, we're an extension of the university. And so we're, we're talking about the same things that we would talk about to students, but for low cost, much lower cost. Animal health is constantly threatened by the exposure of mycotoxins in feed. The monitoring of fungal toxins has become indispensable in the feed industry and in animal production. DSM offers a range of analytical services to assess the mycotoxin contamination and solutions to combat mycotoxins. Learn more at dsm.com forward slash mycotoxin survey. It's time for our famous three. Well, Jacqueline, I think that's going to be a really natural place for us to start to wrap up this conversation. I think that's a great piece of advice to leave producers with. So let's move to our final three questions. So are you ready for this? Sure. Okay. So our first question is, what would you consider to be your favorite beef resource? I really love Progressive Cattlemen Magazine because it's free. <laughs> I tell all of my students, here's a really high quality publication that gets you know, experts like yourself and myself to write articles in there. And it's, it's digital, but it's also free. Um, and j just to add to that free component, anything that's open access. <laughs> I'm a huge proponent of open access journals. Um, I know, or, or there are journal articles that are open access, but I mean, Journal of Dairy Science has just turned the open access. And I'm hoping to see more uh, scientific journals turn that way so that more folks have access to the pure raw science that's happening in the beef industry. I definitely second that. We did a survey that we published last year or two years ago now, maybe. I think it's in translational animal science. And basically we had surveyed uh, ruminant nutritionists, especially feedlot nutritionists. Of course, that's my discipline. And basically said, where do you get your information? And it was pretty obvious, especially for those that were you know, obviously not associated with universities. They're just in private consulting groups and stuff that paywalls are a major deterrent. And that was keeping some people from seeing the latest science and embracing that. Right. So, you know, open access and some of the universities now have um, opportunities where they'll actually pay some of those page charges for open access so that that can be an opportunity for faculty to use that. So I think that's, that is so true. Mm -hmm. Okay. Question number two, what is something not related to beef that you're reading right now or watching? I am reading uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, which is a 
a book about the Osage Indians um, and murders that happened there back in the um, early 1900s. And I admittedly, I really love Leonardo DiCaprio and he's going to be in the upcoming movie on that book. So I did the same thing when The Revenant, that movie came out. I read the book first so that I would enjoy the movie more. So totally unrelated. Yeah, but I, I really love that book so far. Achilles of the Flower Moon. Okay. I think that's a pro tip in there too. You should always read the book before you watch the movie. Okay. Third and final question. Uh, if you think about somebody you know that's been successful, what do you think is a trait that they have that's contributed to that success? I, this just, it hits on what I was talking about earlier. Um, just the ability to truly listen to what someone else is saying to you, to drop what is in your mind of how you want to reply to what they're saying before they're even done saying it. I think really that skill, being able to level with people, understand people, empathize with them, it makes you a much more powerful leader, a stronger person, and ultimately, I think it helps you stay more humble. Then those are all just the qualities of success that, that I appreciate. Nice. I love all of that. Well, Jacqueline, thank you so much for joining us on the Beef Podcast show today. This has been a really fun conversation here this morning, and I think our listeners will definitely get a lot out of this one. So thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. 